Welcome to Western Hills Podcast. Years ago, uh, I was at a Texas Rangers baseball game. And I don't remember if I was with the church group or, or with just family, but it was one of those moments, it was one of the first sporting events, professional sporting events I'd ever been to. And I had not yet been introduced to the idea of a jumbotron. And so there's our group, and we're sitting out there. I'm sure we had whatever cheap seats were, were, were available to us. And, and we're all kind of just paying attention to anything and everything and just looking around. And suddenly, I'm getting the, you know, the tap on, on the arm going, look, 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 look. And I wasn't paying attention to anything else, but we look up, and for three seconds, I saw myself on the jumbotron. You know, and if you've ever been in a sporting event, you've seen those, it's one of those moments of like, you know, and, and you're looking a completely different direction because you're not looking at the camera, you know, and, and so, so, but suddenly the whole thing changed for me. Before, I was just kind of watching it all go by, right? I, I was just, just watching the, the game and the outfield and, you know, Whatever's going on the side, you know, down the, the baselines. I, anywhere but just, just not really engaged. But suddenly, for three seconds, I was part of the story, right? I, I got to be part of the story. Now, nobody else remembers that night. I mean, nobody else is going, you know, I remember that game where Scott was on the Jumbotron. But I saw myself... In the story. Why would we spend seven weeks walking with Jesus towards the cross? All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have these very extensive portions of their gospel, their document, dealing with the crucifixion of Jesus. And in fact, most of the time, the Gospels are actually described as crucifixion stories with a long intro. Because the majority of what we have in the New Testament documents of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are actually accounts of the last few days and hours of Jesus' life. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, it from John 13 on, there's 26 chapters in John. From 13 on is a description of the last 24 hours of his life. That, that's how powerful the story is. And each of these writers, they have an agenda. And their agenda is simply this. They want you and I to see ourselves caught up in that story. They want us to see ourselves not as simply readers of it that stand back from it, but people that are actually experiencing it. In many ways, we see ourselves on the screen. We see ourselves in the middle of it. And I'm going to suggest that that is nowhere more true than the story that we look at today. And, and this is a really hard story to look at. Because this is one that we so easily want to put at an arm's distance. This is one of those stories that if you see stories come across the news, 
and you watch people that are either famous or they've got lots of resources, they're very wealthy, and you see them make some life decisions and they just totally crash their career or they blow up their political um, office in a scandal, and you, we think to ourselves, sometimes secretly, sometimes out loud, often on Facebook, we think to ourselves, if that were me, I would never have done that. I wouldn't make that same mistake. If I had their opportunity, their resources, their ability, I wouldn't have made the same mistake. See, it's real easy inside of ourselves to distance ourselves, isn't it? Well, this story, this account, is designed to not let us easily distance ourselves. And if you've got one of the uh, one of the, the sermon handouts, I encourage you to open it. I'm going to actually cover a few more scriptures than are actually covered in this just because we had trouble making it all fit on the page. But if you want to follow along, it's going to be up here on the screen, also in your Bibles. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark is where we're going to start. And what we believe about Mark is that Mark is an eyewitness to these things. Mark was perhaps the earliest gospel written. In fact, Mark is probably a source for some of the other gospels. And so what we believe we have is here's an eyewitness to these events going on. And so when Mark writes, he really gives us a feel of the texture, a feel of the environment that's happening. So as we look at this story, Jesus has been arrested at this point. And he stood before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the legal body, the religious, the governmental, and the, the legal body of the Jewish people. But they were the leaders of an occupied country. And so they really couldn't enact their own laws. They really couldn't carry out their own punishment. And so they don't have the power to execute somebody. And so they are trumping up charges now to take Jesus from Jesus to a guy named Pilate. Now, growing up, I always thought that was like pilot of an airplane. But Pilate, P-I-L-A-T-E is his name. And this is his name, and he is the governor of the area. So he is basically a military ruler. He's been assigned a district. And it's an out-of-the-way district as far as Rome is concerned. And his whole job, his, his whole job is to keep the peace and see that the taxes are paid. That's, that's his role. And so he has a legion of soldiers there, and he is designed to keep the peace. He doesn't want Rome to hear about trouble. Okay, that doesn't look good on his resume. And so... The Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, they cannot execute Jesus themselves. And so they trump up these charges and they send him over to Rome. That's where our story begins. Send him over to Pilate. Chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. Now, you need to underline that sentence right there. They made their plans. Not they were following judicial procedure. Not they were following the law. They made their plans. And if you want to read conspiracy into that, you go right ahead because that's exactly what they're talking about. 
So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Now, the reason Pilate leads with that is because that's the accusation that they had handed him over with. Now, understand the political dynamics. He says, if he says that he's our king, then he's a threat to Rome. He's a threat to Caesar. He, he's usurping something that only Caesar should be um, claiming. And so, so they hand him over with this. And so Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And look how Jesus replies, you have said so. Isn't that great? That's what they say. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus simply says, it's what you say. That's your claim at this point. And in a very real way, he's shifting responsibility right back on top of Pilate. And Pilate does not want to have anything to do with it. Look how it goes on. The chief priest accused him of many things. They had trumped up all these charges. So again, Pilate asked you, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Just picture this scene. Pilate sitting in a place of authority. Trying to keep the airs of he's in control of the situation trying to keep the air about him that he's got the power to do whatever he wants to do. And you've got Jesus perhaps in front of him and then just ringed all the way around the chief priest and they're firing these accusations. And he said this and he did this and he did this. And each one is designed to incite Pilate to be more and more concerned about what kind of message is going to get back to Rome. And they're trying to paint Jesus as one that says, he's leading a rebellion. He's leading an insurrection. He's a dangerous, dangerous man. In the middle of it, Jesus is calm. And so you have this great contrast in pictures to where Jesus, even though he's facing Pilate, who supposedly has all the control It's actually Jesus that has complete control. Jesus is standing there with no doubt about his power and his authority. And he is standing there and is enduring this by choice. And even with all that Pilate thinks he has control over, he has no control over the situation and he doesn't even know it. He's beholding to so many different places, not the least of which is Rome and Caesar, and yet the king of kings is standing in front of him, and they're trying to squabble over whether or not he said king of the Jews or not. Total control, and this amazes Pilate, because here's what I believe. Pilate recognized power when he saw it. He had been trained to recognize power. He could sniff it out. He knew where to go to be around the powerful people. And he realizes that this one in front of him is unlike anybody he's encountered so far. So he goes on. Chapter six, I mean, verse six. 
Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. And he knows he's being played. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Now, this is where the writers, Mark, wants us to step in and clearly see ourselves on the screen. Because Pilate is trying to put the responsibility back on to the chief priest and says, what's, what's the crime here? They keep saying he's the king of the Jews. And he, they keep, he keeps taunting them with that, in fact. So what do you want me to do with this one, the king of the Jews? And there was a custom that Pilate had, apparently. So he could come across as benevolent, as he would release a prisoner at the time. And so Pilate thinks, I'm going to use that. And I'm going to release, I'm going to use that to try to release him. Because I think Jesus has got some favor with the people. And so when that's brought up, he says, look, I've got another guy in prison. Look. Let let me release somebody, but I'm going to let you choose. Again, he keeps wanting the responsibility off of his shoulders. He doesn't want it on his hands. He says, I've got another guy in prison. I've got Barabbas. And listen to how he describes Barabbas. He says, he was a part of the insurrection. He was a part of the rebellion. He's guilty of murder. Who do you want? You want him or the one that says he's king of the Jews? And there's such evil at work right now in this moment that the chief priest and all the leaders go throughout the crowd and they they stirred him up. And so when it came time, when Pilate says, who do you want me to release? Thinking that he's going to win over the crowd and he's going to be able to walk away from this, they cry out, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And then, shocked, he says, what do you want me to do with the one that you call king of the Jews? And then the crowd cries, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And it ends this way. Verse 15 says this. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Can you imagine that moment from Barabbas' point of view? He's in a cell somewhere. Perhaps he's within hearing distance of this. And he hears this name. He shouted, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Followed by, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And the next thing he knows, the cell doors are opening up and guards are there to take him away. So this is it. 
It's over. They've just called for my head. And he's led out and suddenly he's released. And maybe he sees Jesus standing there. And the pieces start to fall in place. That what he is actually literally guilty of. Jesus is about to pay the price. What, what he has been condemned with. Jesus is about to be condemned with. What should be his punishment. What should be his sentence. Has now been replaced. By this one that perhaps he never even met. I just wonder what Barabbas thought in that moment. As he looked across perhaps that courtyard and that mob and that crowd. As they cried, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Barabbas understood that what was intended for him was now being directed at somebody else. And he was allowed to go free. For that. It says Pilate wanted to satisfy this crowd. And so he turns Jesus over to be crucified and he's flogged. And you can read different accounts of this flogging that takes place. This whipping is what it, what it meant. Now I share in the handout. We have this one from the Gospel of John. John chapter 19. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And flogged would mean a whipping. And it was a special kind of a whipping because they would take a short-handled whip that had various straps of leather coming off of it. And into these straps would be tied bone and pottery and metal because it was designed not just to whip, but it was designed to fillet, to literally pull flesh. And so it would be laid across the victim's back designed to embed all of the metal and the bone and the pottery and whatever was on that into it so that when it was drawn back, it would be drawn back with a quick motion designed to actually pull flesh from bone. The rule was that the idea was that they were to whip somebody within a heartbeat of their life. Because they didn't want to cut short the crucifixion that was to come. And so they were well experienced at this. And so they pushed Jesus or whoever the victim was at the time all the way up till they felt he couldn't endure anymore. And only that stopped it. Verse 2. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and they went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Mark's account, if you go back there, you see that they're spitting on him. There's no greater indignation. They're just mocking him. And so here's Jesus in the middle of it. The one that is innocent, the one whose guilt is only to love the one that came as the perfect sacrifice and he was able to live his life without committing the sin that so easily entangles you and me. And he's condemned and he's mocked and he's punished for it. Hail, King of the Jews. You can just hear the taunt. And I wonder, what was it about him 
that everybody else that seemed like they had power, they felt the need to bully him. To pick on him in this kind of way. He's already sent us to die. He's headed toward death right now just because of the beating that he's received. And yet still that's not enough. And so they put this robe on him. Perhaps it was just a, a, a horse blanket that they found. And they fashioned this crown of thorns. They jam it down on his head. And they continue to hit him and beat him. There's, this is a, a, an image of no restraint at this point. Mocked. And, and this is where the gospel writer, Mark, wants us to step into the picture and see ourselves on this screen. Because what Mark is setting up and all the gospel writers are setting up is this idea that Jesus is innocent of everything they're charging him with and yet he's going to receive all the punishment that's due a Barabbas, an insurrectionist, a rebellion leader, and a murderer. One that said, we will overthrow Rome and we'll do it violently. A dangerous man. And I believe what Mark wants to do is he wants to hear not just the name of Barabbas, but our name being shouted. Scott, Scott, Scott. What should we do with him? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Because just like Barabbas, Jesus steps in for the punishment that was intended for me. The one that I am guilty of and deserving of. The one that should be condemning to me. The one that should strip me of any kind of hope. Any kind of encouragement. Any kind of future looking in my life. Jesus steps into that. And just like Barabbas. My jail cell swings open. And I'm told you can go free in that moment. I I can go free, but I'm guilty. We know. But another one's stepping in your place. I, I get to go free, but I've been condemned. We know. But now another one has in your place. And what we have throughout this whole story is this idea that Jesus makes this incredible exchange with us. And this is the good news. All of the brokenness, all of the rebellion, all of the sin, all of the mistakes, all the times that I've betrayed somebody, all the times I've let somebody down, all of the angst I've carried, all the anxiety that I've carried, all of that junk... Jesus steps in my place for. And suddenly I'm standing on the outside of the cell. And he's the condemned one. The perfect, innocent king of kings steps in my place. And this is where the gospel writers want to stand. He becomes the sacrificial lamb. You may have heard that language before. It's the idea that he's going to take upon the sins... And he's going to receive death for that so that my sin... See, God doesn't take sin lightly. God had to come up with a way to deal with my sin because I can't deal with my own sin. And so he says, there must be a death for the sin. So he substitutes, he changes 
Jesus in my place. And now Jesus gets all of my condemnation and he gives to me his righteousness. So just like a Barabbas, as I stumble into the light, blinded by it because I've lived in a dark place, I can't believe what's happening. It's beyond comprehension. Because Barabbas did absolutely nothing to earn his way out of that cell. I have done absolutely nothing to earn the way out of my cell that I created. You have done absolutely nothing to earn your way out. Every now and then I'll talk to somebody and they'll they'll maybe be thinking about the end of their life. Or thinking about what comes in the next life. And they'll say something like this. I hope I've done enough. What Barabbas would walk up to you and tell you is, you can't do enough. There's not enough. There's no way. Jesus can. And he steps into that place. And so, what do we do with a story like this? My prayer is that we see ourselves in it. Is that we see ourselves as part of that crowd that Christ crucified him. And we don't try to be like a pilot where we step back and say, that's not on me. That's not what I'm a part of. And we acknowledge that Jesus took my place because he had to, because I was powerless to do it on my own. And that should help us to fall in love with Jesus all the more. See, if... If your view of religion is this, is that there's a set of rules, and if you follow all the rules, you please God, the one that gave us the rules, and those that please God are those that get about 70% or 85% or, my gosh, I hope he goes on a curve, you know, um, that he would come along. That's not what Jesus offers Jesus comes along and offers to take your place. That's why it's called good news. It's good news because he's stepping in your place. Not helping you follow more rules, but taking your place. And I want this story to help you fall in love with him all the more as you understand more and more and more of what he did that you would fall in love with the one, that even though you were in a position where you were trapped in your own sin, that he stepped into that moment. And he stepped into that place, that dark place, and took all that was headed your way for you. And I know that's a dark thought in some ways, but I pray for you that it's an incredibly encouraging thought. That as you go out from here, it's not more about, let me get more of the rules right, but let me fall deeply in love with the one that loved me enough first to take my place. Let me pray for us. Father, if there's a story that I pray that we, help, we see ourselves in, I pray that we see ourselves in this story.
I pray that we see ourselves like a Barabbas caught, trapped, hopeless, and that suddenly the door swings open because Jesus is going to take our place. So, Father, I pray for anyone that has yet to not understand this message, that this is brand new or foreign or they didn't understand it, that you would break through all of that and you'd help us to see ourselves on that screen, that you help us see ourselves in that crowd that we cry crucify because we need somebody to step into our place. We need somebody to take our sin from us and all the brokenness. Father, I pray that this story helps us to fall in love with Jesus. I I, I pray that this would drive us and compel us to realize what an incredible and awesome gift he is to us, Father. I pray that we would see your grace in this moment, that we would see your love expressed for us in this moment. And then that would be the fuel to change our lives. Father, I ask for all those that feel so far from you that right now all they can see is the darkness that you would break through with this incredible message. And I ask that there would be a response in their hearts, that there would be a change in their attitude. And they would begin to take a step your direction because you are ready and willing and eager for them. In the name of Jesus, I pray, the one that took our place, the one that is king of kings, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Western Hills podcast. Please visit our website, westernhillsonline.org, to find out more about us.